It's good to see you here in the room. If you're fully vaccinated and feel comfortable, you can take your masks off. They've, uh, they've given us permission, so game on, everybody. It's time to show the bottom half of your face around here. <laughs> we are continuing with the season of Eastertide, this great 50 days when we grapple with the implications of resurrection for the world. And today is Ascension Sunday, when we celebrate the Ascension of Christ. And um, I want to start with this, though. There's, there's this new group of explorers, modern-day explorers, who go exploring abandoned places all over the world. It's like urban safaris or kind of remote, um, deserted, and forgotten safaris. They go to these places, and they take incredible pictures and videos and post them all online. And um, it, it's kind of, it's one of the ways I live vicariously through other people because I'm not a risk taker and they are definitely risk takers. And um, there, I mean, some pretty great stuff out there. For example, it's become popular to travel to Russia and explore the exclusion zone of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster site from 1986. And, and you, if you go there, you find these eerie scenes. I want to show you some of these pictures of like homes that are, that were just walked away from in 86. And now they're just kind of dilapidated. Like when they, when they say everything's radioactive, you don't like pack it in your bag and take it with you. Like you just leave it sitting around, which they did. So there's like this abandoned school with notebooks where, still on the desks where the kids left them. And they were just completing this amusement park in the center of town and just left it sitting there where it was. Just walked away from it. There's an old dentist's office just slowly decaying. Get it? <laughs> dentist's office? Dude, that's the best joke I've written in a long time. You only groaned. <laughs> dentist's office decayed. That's gold. That's comedy gold. So the dentist's office is going bad. There's this other hotel. This is like a quintessential like Eastern block hotel, right? And they just, they just walked away. It's all just abandoned. There's an old municipal natatorium. This is kind of the roof's falling down. And, and then there's this old cafe. This is one of the favorite spots in town. It has these big stained glass windows. It's crazy. So these guys, you know, they, they go into places like Chernobyl where people had to just walk away because of this disaster and they, they start taking pictures of what's, what's left, right? Another popular place is in the foot of the Swiss Alps. There are these little ghost towns and abandoned villas that are just stunning places. Most of them, they were, um, they're photographed now. They're abandoned because they're just too costly to maintain. These ornate places, they're amazing. Just abandoned, often with like really nice furniture or pianos left, just left sitting there. These massive homes and old, ornate estates. It's just being overgrown, right? The vines. There's one that, um, in the same, same area with, like, their last meal is still on the table. Like, hard-boiled eggs. And... There's this a, a terrace there with, the, like, this incredible view. And nobody ever gets to see it, except, except the trespassers. 
trying to get followers on Instagram, right? There's another place um, that gets photographed a lot. It's called Grossinger's. It's um, this 1,200-acre resort in the Catskills. Um, and it was popular, you know, anti-Semitism in the early part of the 20th century um, was, it was bad. And so Grossinger's was this posh resort that opened up in 1914, and they sort of catered to Jewish families. So you could come out of vacation and get away from all that. And um, it, it, went, it was open from 1914, and then it closed down in 1986. I mean, dude, this is the height of the 60s, 50s, 60s. This is as cool as it gets right there. Um, it was actually called the Waldorf of the Catskills. They had um, Olympic-sized swimming pools. That was then up top, and then this is now after a few decades of sitting all by itself. At the height of their success, they had 150,000 guests a year. That's the big pool on the left, and then what's left of it there on the right. They had an actual winter ski slope. In fact, this, this resort was the first place ever to make artificial snow. They were the first ones to pioneer that ever. That was Grossinger's. They had a, a summer ice rink indoors. You could skate. That's what it looks like now. They had a, their own golf course, tennis courts. They had this famous dining room that could seat 3,000 people at once that's now just in ruins. They had a ballroom that hosted all kinds of entertainers, famous comedians, Jerry Lewis, Jerry Seinfeld, when he was coming up, performed there, and ballroom dancing. In fact, Grossinger's is the place that is the inspiration behind the movie Dirty Dancing. That's the place, Grossinger's. Someone eventually bought the place. It, was, it wasn't making money. They bought it, and they planned to reopen it, and so they just left everything sort of where it was, all this stuff just sitting in place for decades. That was the old soda fountain. And it just kind of slowly, because there was nobody taking care of it, just sort of went to pieces. And so lots of people who went there as kids or or just interested in it, show up here with their cameras and take pictures. Um, of all the places that urban explorers photograph, probably the most common is old abandoned churches. Actually, it's probably a toss-up between old abandoned churches and uh, like uh, mental institutions. I'm not going to lie. I don't know why. I don't know what that association really means about us, but those are the two, <laughs> two main ones. You, you can go almost anywhere in the world today and find once vibrant churches that were filled with life for sometimes centuries that are now empty and abandoned. Just like beauty everywhere you look, architectural marvels once enlivened by the prayers of the people, liturgies and songs and incense, now just silent and in various stages of decay. These places that you just know were so meaningful to people, sites of their children's baptisms and first communions, of funerals, of significant moments in their life are now being sort of taken over by nature. Once filled with art, and beauty, and stained glass windows. And now they're covered in graffiti. 
dust and debris. Some of them locked up, almost kind of frozen in time. I love the lonely little um, organ sitting over there. Want somebody to play it? Others bombed out, breaking down. And you look at these places and think how many people just like poured out their hearts to one another and to God in these, in these rooms. Just pouring out their heart and soul. Putting their whole lives into these places. And, and they're still beautiful in a way, but now kind of sad. And what I think all these have in, in common, why I'm taking so long with this, is I think like places like Chernobyl, places like the Swiss Alps, villas, Grossingers, these abandoned churches, what they have in common is a powerful absence. The only reason people are even interested in going to these places and taking pictures of them now is that there is this powerful absence um, that's having an impact in that place on the physical world such that it actually shows up when they, when they film it or take photographs. The absence is what makes them interesting, and it's manifesting itself in the physical world. And so people who have sort of no conscious, at least, interest in God will travel all over the world, and they'll break laws and trespass just to get inside these old churches and photograph them. They wouldn't set, inside a, a church, set foot inside a church that is actually having a worship service, but if the, if the walls have crumbled a bit and, and the art's been plundered, they're, they're there. Some place where the, the stones were scavenged for new houses. I mean, why, why are they drawn to, this, drawn to this, these dilapidated buildings, right? They're, they're drawn there by absence, by an absence. Silently, I think, bearing witness to something unspeakable. I love that one. There's sometimes sheep that go grazed in there. This unspeakable, sort of unnameable presence of absence. And it's like the only way they can capture what's happening are, are these pictures. It's weird that a lot of other videos on like YouTubers and stuff like that. There's a lot of talk, 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 talk. These guys just show you. And there's almost kind of a, they whisper a lot. There's a kind of reverence to it. Something that they're trying to capture here is beyond words, this absence. It's a powerful thing. It's a powerful force. And it was the concern nagging at the hearts of the disciples as Jesus addressed his followers for what turned out to be the last time here on earth. And there was this question hanging in the air, what would happen once he's gone? Would they end up like so many abandoned cathedrals, right? Once glorious temples of God, now just empty and sad. Would they crumble and fall to pieces, plundered and co-opted? You know, absence, man, it's a powerful thing. It doesn't take long for it to start to do its work. Absence is, for us, it's that thing that um, we all sense when some sort of meaningful presence has been um, interrupted. And without that first, that presence, there can be no absence. And the more powerful the presence was in our life, the more powerful the absence will be. And so Jesus' absence after the cross was powerfully felt by his followers. But then there was this renewed hope. He started showing up in the world. And appearing after the resurrection. And, and then came this, this decisive moment, the ascension. 
It's really one of the most important things that Jesus ever did, which is strange because most of us don't really know the meaning of the ascension. Like we could, we could talk about the, the birth, a lot of his teachings and miracles, his, his death, his resurrection. But if we had to like speak about the, the ascension, I'm not sure that we could probably do it, which is, which is weird because it's a powerful thing he did here. And the story of the ascension begins right after um, the road to Emmaus in Luke. Jesus appears in Jerusalem saying, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So here again, he's mentioning, we talked about this, the three foundations of the Jewish faith, the, the law, the first five book, books of the Bible, just basic instructions on how to be people of God, the prophets, which was kind of the counter testimony of how it's going or not going, right? They, they were... It's exposing idolatry and mistreatment of the poor. And then the Psalms, their, their prayer book, their, their poetry, the vocabulary of their, their faith. And, and Jesus is saying that his, his ministry is somehow the climax of Israel's long, long story in these three big sources, the law, the prophets, the poets. They were building to this moment, and then we're told he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So they're going to have to let go of some stuff. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Let go of some old ways of th seeing things. If they're going to reimagine what it means to be faithful. And, and then it says, he said to them, thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And so the kind of the central aspect of his mission was to lead people to repentance, you know, change course, and forgiveness. Just this sense that everything's okay. Remember, that that's the negation of the negation. Forgiveness means it's, it doesn't go away. It just doesn't matter, at least not in the same way our brokenness doesn't. And, and he believed this could have a deep impact, not just on the Jewish people, but all nations, for all nations. And so in God's absence, the people, you know, they had turned to religious and political ideologies and nationalism and just kind of weirdness. And he was offering them a whole new way to enter into their lives. But they'd have to rethink some things first. They'd have to drop some, like, certitudes about the world. They'd have to find some space for mystery and wonder and awe. They'd have to leave vengeance behind for relationships of grace. They'd have to renounce power and dominance for gentleness and self-control. Jesus really kind of subverted their view of this angry, vengeful, aloof God waiting to pounce on them, talking about this God who's like a father, just a loving father who's really, really close. And he said, you are my witnesses of these things. We talked about this. Witness means it has the same root as the word martyr, marturis, um, those who bear witness are the ones who take up their cross, who embody the death and resurrection just in the way that they live their lives, dropping kind of their ideologies and their need to be right and taking up their cross and this, this need to pour their lives out for other people. But this cannot be done for us by a leader, right? We have to follow with our own two feet. And that's part of the meaning of the ascension as well. Let's read on. He says, and see, I am sending upon you what my father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. That's um, Pentecost, and we'll talk about that next Sunday on, on Pentecost Sunday. 
Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. So part, part of the ascension involves asking the question, why? Like, why did he have to go away? Why not just stay and keep leading the disciples in the church? And at least part of the re- reason seems to be that he was trying to um, transcend the, the ideological infighting of his day, all the different Jewish sectarian conflicts. He, he was trying to, I mean, what, he was in Jew- Jerusalem a week, and they killed him? Like, how long till they just do that to him again? His, his, his goal wasn't to somehow pick one of those factions and help them win the ideological battle. He, he was trying to get to all nations. That's where he was going, all nations. To bring them a new way to organize their common life together so that they could actually see God breaking into the world through each other. He was trying to get humanity to be human, as human is meant to be. And, and so he couldn't do this for them. He, he had to step back and ascend to the Father. So the ascension, in a sense, is a little bit like the detonator exploding the kingdom of God um, from this, wherever Jesus is walking around, to, to the rest of the world. When, when he was alive, the mission was limited to one time and one place. After he ascends, that limitation is removed. He's free to be everywhere and always. And so through the ascension, the presence of Christ becomes universal. That's a big aspect of the meaning of the ascension. Not just accessible to the 12, but soon after Pentecost to be accessible to all nations. All of them bearing witness to the reality that there actually really is in the world more power to love and self-sacrifice than all of the, you know, ideologies and armies and organizing principles of the world. The world had lost touch with that reality. But it's like everywhere Jesus went, they caught a glimpse of, of it again. This power of love, it was unleashed through him as he came in contact with broken bodies. This power was just moving out into the world, but he was only one man, right? He couldn't meet everyone in the entire world, so he would just detonate his power, his presence into the world through the church, and they could meet with everyone in the world, and in fact have, kind of. And soon, everything that used to only happen when Jesus was around, it started to happen everywhere these followers of his went, these ordinary people, a little crazy, some of them, you know, who had once, by the way, abandoned him, became all of a sudden martyrs, martyrs, witnesses who lay down their lives for others. And, and all of them came more alive somehow as a result. It doesn't make sense, but it happened. And so a bunch of ragamuffin disciples, mostly failures when Jesus was around, mostly confused in the Gospels, would go on to incredible faithfulness once he was gone after the ascension. It's almost like, as long as he stuck around, it's like a, like a teenager in the house who can, has figured out over the years how to get their parents to do everything for them. And then when they move away, it's like, you got to learn a lot of stuff to do for yourself, right? 
I was a train wreck for the good first semester of college. Um, and so, so this is a gift. I mean, Jesus' final gift in teaching to his people was his absence. And it's strange to say because his presence was so powerful, but that's part of what was, there was even a greater power in his absence. There was just so much potential, infinite potential and power and packed into his teaching about love and the nature of love is self-sacrifice. And, and this was all inaugurated, of course, but it was just sitting there kind of in nascent form, just raw potential. And they were sort of in a holding pattern, trying to figure out what was going on, trying to reimagine Messiah, trying to figure out, is he back, like staying back or back? And what, what is going on? And, and they're just kind of waiting, stuck. What does it all mean? And Christ's ascension is just this this detonator. It just explodes the kingdom into their lives, just ignites this energy and power and begins to unleash it on the world through his disciples. And they began to preach, tell people, Jesus didn't just come for us to, to live for us, to do life for us. He came to live through us, in us and through us, out into the world to help us come fully alive and then just infect the rest of the world with that life, that presence, through relationship, through love, as self-sacrifice, through grace especially. You don't have to hold to the ideologies and stuff. There's, there's this grace in all of it. And they began to learn to, to discern Christ's presence in their midst immediately. Whenever two or three were gathered, they could, they could tell he was with them. They sensed his spirit. And this began to help them see themselves and the world more truthfully. And so it really is Christ's absence that would open up this void, this space into the world. And as soon as his followers began to step into that space, they, they found he was actually there, just in a different way. And they found that, that Jesus began to live on in the world through them. And they sort of stopped waiting around on him to come back, on the side to come fix everything. They start fixing stuff themselves. Because the spirit of the Messiah was alive in their hearts and in the community of the faithful disciples. It was just changing their view of reality and even themselves. And that's why the ascension had this impact, not just on the religious types, but on all nations. I think it's actually why people travel all over the world with their cameras trying to catch a glimpse of something, you know, meaningful, transcendent, exploring old abandoned churches. They're, they're driven by this longing that they probably can't even consciously explain, a longing to catch a glimpse of the divine in this world for a sign that we're not just like left here alone to our own devices, that there's some kind of meaning and purpose to it all. And this is, this is old, this quest. I mean, it's, it's been going on since the dawn of human consciousness. In all times, in all places, people have just been haunted by this sense that God is real, that God is unavoidable, but also somehow at the same time just always beyond our reach. It's absurd. This, this deep longing for God, this inescapable sense. I mean, the most ardent atheist can have a baby and in the next moment be thanking God. Like, we can't help ourselves. It just, it's in us. 
And yet there is also this absence, this distance. It's frustrating. And, and we're so captive in the meantime to the material world, and we're not very good at exploring spiritual things anyway. So instead, we just explore abandoned things, looking for a presence through this absence. And we watch movies about superheroes and zombies, and we tell ghost stories and explore old abandoned churches or haunted houses, or we study physics, hoping to see some magic in the molecules, or we create great works of art and music and film, longing to just capture in some physical way this mystery and wonder and awe that is beyond anything we could ever say. I'm talking about countless billions of people down through time, all of them sensing that something is out there guiding them as they try to navigate life. There's a presence, a source of some kind beyond themselves, but it's just frustratingly shrouded in an absence. And so they cry out, show yourself, like we need to see you. We need to know that you are real. But they couldn't see with their eyes and struggled to feel God's presence, so they created idols for themselves. They cried out, save us from our enemies, you know, move in power. But they were afraid. And God, you know, takes a lot of time, usually, to do anything. And so they built armies and weapons in the meantime to save themselves. And they cried out, you know, heal us in our brokenness. I mean, we can see the sin, like we're longing to be healed. Come, come and save us from the pain we're causing each other and ourselves. But they still felt broken. And so they created scapegoats and sacred objects and religious factions and you know, political ideologies. And through it all, God was with them. They just couldn't see God like those old abandoned churches. They, they felt that God was somehow present in God's absence. And they took all that energy, all that desire, and that, that longing for God and that frustration at God's absence, and they just did the only thing we can really do, which is they cried out to God. And God is a God who hears the cries of the people who come earnestly Seeking for them in the in Second Samuel, there's in the message version. Um, Eugene Peterson says that it's become so deeply meaningful to me. He, it's, his translation is, "Everybody who tries for God makes it." That's the prophet. Every everyone who tries for God makes it. And so. All of this energy, all of this desire, longing for God, searching through all the crazy, weird spaces where maybe something holy might be going on until finally God just showed up in a human person, took on human flesh, finally. They could see him, this Jesus of Nazareth, and he lived and he taught, and he did crazy miracles, stuff that they had never even imagined could be done. And he was always finding whoever was left out and left behind, the poor, the marginalized, the immigrant, the unclean, the tax collector. And eventually they killed him. And they thought it was over and 
And then he starts showing up again in the world. They're like, what is going on? And not just them, like four or 500 people see him alive. And now this is all coming full circle. He's come back to Jerusalem, and then they're on the, the edges of town, and he, he leaves again. God disappears into the clouds. Jesus ascends to the Father. And it's almost like God is just saying, look, the nations will always groan and cry out to God. And they'll crash into each other and hurt each other. They'll build idols and armies trying to control the world. They will break into old abandoned churches just to get a glimpse of something holy. They'll study physics. They'll write their songs. They'll make their films. And it will feed this longing and desire for God. The problem is, and this is kind of what he's trying to convey right before the ascension, the problem is nobody else on the planet has seen what you guys have seen. You're the only ones who know. This new way of being human that's being engendered in his movement. So we, so we tried to tell them, like, look, if the world is ever going to know that God is real, that God is not angry with us, that God is always with us, that God just wants us to live in peace and flourish. If the nations will ever see the face of God, they will have to see the face of God in your faces. You will be my witnesses when you learn to lay down your life. I mean, it's easy to, when you're in the middle of it, to think that the absence of God is our fault. Like we've done something wrong or like God's posture toward us is that God is angry. Way too many religious people just, you know, prey on that. But it, God's trying to balance this, this need we have to feel connection, but just this the necessity of God's presence so that we'll be human and, and not try to get God to be human for us. And this desire that God has to help us to be all that we can be, to be human as human is meant to be. That's, that's the ascension. If Christ is going to live on in the world, it'll be through you and me. If the world can ever hope to find what they're longing for, it's going to be little ragamuffin churches like Redemption filled with broken people. That's a necessity. People who are far from perfect and who refuse to pretend. Dazed, I mean, confused. If you're not confused yet, hang around a while. We'll confuse you good because I'm confused. You know, but still chasing, chasing, chasing after God, breaking into abandoned churches, trying to find some space where the veil between heaven and earth is thin, and, and also at the same time caught up in the mission of God, chasing after the outcast, just being paired with them. And this crazy thing happens when we do this. It's like he never left. He's just here. He just shows up. St. Teresa said it this way, Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands 
Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body on earth but, but yours. This is, this is the ascension. This is the final teaching that could only be learned in his absence. It's kind of weird because you'd think they'd be freaking out. Usually when somebody important leaves, you're, you're going a little nuts. They saw this as good news. It says they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. They were afraid to go to the temple. They were hiding from the people who ran the temple, and here they just show up. We're, and all fear is gone. But this love, man, this love between them had taken on new meaning. And yes, Jesus was still absent from them, at least in a physical form. Um, but when they gathered, he was there between them. They could feel his presence in their midst. And it, instead of being fearful, they just had hope and joy. Instead of blame and vengeance, they, they were just filled with grace and compassion and reconciliation. And it transformed this little ragamuffin community into the very body of Christ. And you and I here today, we're part of this legacy. This is our story. We're the church. And the good news that, that filled them fills us. And you don't have to be perfect and pure and righteous and holy. And you can't be. You just, you just have to be crazy enough to love. To be part of the kingdom of God, you just have to learn how to love God, self, other, creation. And after all these centuries, it's funny because some Christians at least still have the audacity to believe the church is the place where God is present in the world. And even though Christ is no longer physically present, he's not like walking around, touching and healing. And even though we struggle and we hurt each other, right? And we fail and we are broken in many ways. The miracle just keeps happening every time we gather. Barbara Brown Taylor, she says it this way. She says, the roof may be gone. I feel like she should say, the roof may be gone, baby. Like, it's bad. It's indeed horrible. The roof may be gone, and there may be sheep grazing in the nave. But, she says, Christ is still there. Christ is still there, half a face, with one wide eye looking right at us. One hand raised in endless benediction. Still giving his blessing to a ruined church. He cannot, or maybe will not, be separated from his body. What God has joined together, let no one put asunder. I mean, look at this place. It's a mess. Yeah, that's us. And that's our Savior. One, you know, wide eye, half a face, still looking down, going, you can do this. You were made for this. The church is a mess. This church, even, is a mess. Half in ruins, a bunch of ragamuffins who certainly don't have their act together. But Christ is here, half a face, one wide eye looking right at us, saying, bear witness, you can do it. Take up your cross, embody this love that has no limits. Amen? Let's pray. 
oh God, that this would be our story. And that we would be um, brave to show up and be ourselves, that we would chase, <laughs> chase the ghost of you, you know, chase the place where you once were, chase this absence, laying down our lives, pouring our lo- out our lives for each other and for those who are on the margins is struggling. And we believe that you will show yourself and you'll make us human as human is meant to be and you'll teach us how to love. And so we're chasing it down with all we've got. And please help us. Amen. invite you to stand if you would and we're going to receive communion now. If you didn't get the elements when you came in, Beth is right in the center. You can just run over and grab some from her. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he passed it around. They all drank from it, just like they ate from the bread. And he said, this this cup is a new covenant in my blood, a new deal that is, is purchased with my life, a new way of relating to God and self and other and world. And so he said, anytime you gather, eat this bread, drink this cup. Remember, take my life into your life and remember who you are in this world. And so that's why we receive communion every week, to tell us who we are, to become this, this thing that we feast on and then be out in the world and let them feast on us, right? So if you would just hold it in front of you and let's um, bless it. Lord, we ask your blessing upon the bread and the cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then Send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. I invite you to receive communion and then join us in our closing song.